Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In this episode, our topic is viruses and vaccines. In the first part of this podcast, I spoke about the biology of viruses. How do they infect cells? What makes them virulent? And why viral infections may or may not turn into pandemics? In the second part, we'll now probe how biomedical science has developed tools for fighting viruses. One of the most effective approaches for limiting the destructiveness of pathogenic viruses is, of course, by limiting their spread in the first place. The truth is, we humans are not particularly great at that. During the Spanish flu or H1N1 epidemic of 1918-19, one-third of the world's population contracted the virus, and approximately 10% of those people infected died. And so far, as of the date of this recording and the current context, the World Health Organization estimates that 10% of people on the planet have already been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, with a mortality rate higher than that of the seasonal flu, but much less than that of the mortality rate of the 1919 outbreak. So what has changed since 1919? To be sure, influenza and COVID-19 are very different infections with differing virulence, pathophysiology, and epidemiology, so it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. But in general terms, we have many more tools in the toolbox for treating the COVID-19 pandemic compared to the pandemic during the First World War. For example, Assistive technologies and treatments such as ventilators and supplemental oxygen help to relieve some of the burden on our bodies from fighting viral illnesses. As well, we have pharmacotherapeutic tools that were not extant a century ago. Antiviral medications such as the HIV drugs lopinavir and ritonavir and ribavirin and others have met with some modest success in helping to treat COVID-19. More specifically, we know that from the last podcast that The SARS-CoV-2 virus unleashes a surge in inflammatory molecules called the cytokine storm. And a relatively old drug called dexamethasone, which is a steroidal anti-inflammatory, can help to blunt the SARS-CoV-2 cytokine storm as part of the pathophysiology of this virus. However, here we are back again with prevention being the best option for helping to combat this disease, which brings us to vaccines. I'll spend some time on the current global race to produce a COVID-19 vaccine, but I think it's important to review the past as well as the present of vaccinology. And to begin that, we need to go way back. In 429 BCE, the Greek historian Thucydides recorded that people who survived smallpox were safe from reinfection. However, it was actually the Chinese who developed the first form of inoculation or vaccination. Somewhere between 900 to 1000 AD, Chinese healers discovered that people exposed to smallpox scabs were less likely to get the disease. The preferred manner of inoculation at the time? Well, they crushed smallpox scabs into powder and had people inhale this powder up the nose. I know this sounds kind of peculiar, and you have to wonder how in the world did they think of that, but Lest you ponder that particular arcane medicinal practice for too long, let's flash forward to the 1700s. Lady Mary Montague, the wife of the English ambassador to Turkey at the time, 
discovered the practice of virilization while living overseas. This involves scraping off smallpox pustules again, and these are called variolae, and rubbing or inserting these pustules into scratches made in the skin. Lady Montague herself had had this disease as a child, and out of concern for the health of her children, had them all inoculated. Fortunately, this worked out rather well for Lady Montague and her family. But this technique of virilization could be somewhat hit or miss, and there was a danger that it could actually cause full-blown smallpox. Along came Dr. Edward Jenner, an English physician scientist who, in the latter part of the 1700s, began the process of translating the art of virilization into the science of vaccinology. Jenner noticed that dairy workers were sometimes afflicted with cowpox, a similar but much milder disease compared to smallpox. When test subjects were inoculated with cowpox pustules, they did not, as a rule, develop smallpox. In due course, this led to the term vaccination, which is a derivation of variolae vaccinae, or smallpox of the cow. At the heart of the practice of vaccination is the exposure of a person to a similar agent as the one that causes the disease. The key point here is that the immune system will recognize, for example, the cowpox virus, as a foreign pathogen and respond. Just what is this response? A key element in the body's immunological defense network are white blood cells called B lymphocytes or B cells. And these recognize the antigen and then they do a couple of things. They become plasma cells, which form antibodies against the virus, and they also become memory cells. It may be helpful to use a Star Wars analogy. Memory cells are like stormtroopers, which, if you follow the Star Wars movies, are actually clones or copies of the original warrior. These cloned B cells are then exact copies of the original one that was able to first recognize the virus. So now, after encountering the enemy, or virus, you've got a whole legion of B cells which are also able to respond to the virus. This principle actually explains how vaccines in general work. If you're first exposed to a weakened form of a virus, part of a virus, or something that looks similar to the virus, but that doesn't make you ill, your body produces a bunch of B-cell clones. These clones produce the specific antibody which is able to help respond to the virus when it's encountered. So after exposure to cowpox, when you're actually exposed to smallpox, your body has enough B-cells to defend against it. A similar but slightly different approach applies to other vaccines. In the 1880s, Louis Pasteur developed a vaccine against chicken cholera. Now, cholera is actually caused by a bacterium, but the way he did this harkens back to the old technique of virilization. Pasteur found that old lab cultures of cholera bacteria, that is, ones in which the bacteria were either weakened or dead, also protected chickens from live cholera bacteria. And if you remember the good lady Montague, you can apply the same principle. The variolae or scabs contain dead or inactivated virus particles. In either case, these can produce an immune response, resulting again in these B-cell clones, which are capable of producing antibodies which can then deal with the live virus. Since that time, scientists have used variations on this theme. Famously, in 1952, Dr. Jonas Salk invented the first polio vaccine, by chemically inactivating the polio virus. Since then, polio has essentially been eradicated. However, herein also lies a cautionary tale. 
Unfortunately, in 1955, just as the war and polio seemed to be rounding the corner and we seemed to be winning, several cases of polio developed in children who had been vaccinated. As it turns out, there was an error in the mass production of the vaccine by the Cutter Pharmaceutical Company, and this resulted in viruses which had been insufficiently inactivated, and the vaccine actually caused the disease it was supposed to protect against. This should naturally provoke an important question. Should you be then fearful that a vaccine can actually give you the disease you're seeking immunity from? In a word, in my opinion, no. Today, vaccines go through multiple stages of clinical trials and approval with stringent guidelines for manufacture. We have developed vaccines which are both safe and effective against a wide variety of viral diseases. We've also gotten a lot smarter when it comes to developing vaccines. For example, the first generation of vaccines included either live but weakened viral strains, such as measles, or dead, non-viable pathogens, such as polio. Second-generation vaccines involved using smaller subunits of viruses which were incapable of causing disease, or using deactivated toxins. A third-generation of vaccines involved either recombinant DNA technology, in which the genes that produce subunits of viral pathogens are introduced, or the use of viral messenger RNA that our cells can use to make viral proteins, thereby provoking an immune response. But more of this in one of the burning questions. Burning question number one. Does vaccination cause autism? The claim that vaccination causes autism is famous, and it has been famously debunked. A British physician named Dr. Andrew Wakefield published a small study which purported to link autism with the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR combination vaccine. Upon further investigation, it appeared that the data had been manipulated, and Wakefield had been paid by lawyers who were hoping for a lawsuit against vaccine makers. As if that was not conflict enough, Wakefield was promoting another vaccine for which he had a patent. In other words, he stood to make money by damning the MMR vaccine. The original paper that this was reported in has been withdrawn, and Andrew Wakefield is no longer licensed to practice medicine. Sadly, however, many people, including celebrities, most of whom have no medical or scientific credentials, still promote this conspiracy theory. I could go on and on debunking other conspiracy theories regarding vaccines. Instead, I will simply ask you this. Do you know anyone with polio? Burning question number two. How are vaccines being developed against SARS-CoV-2? In the rush to find a vaccine, many different approaches and technologies have been employed. The two frontrunners, at least currently, the Pfizer and Moderna company vaccines, have been developed using novel but surprisingly effective technology, that is, the injection of messenger RNA coding for coronavirus spike proteins. And these proteins are what permit the coronavirus, or SARS-CoV-2, to attach to target cells. Now, this principle is simple but clever. RNA is delivered to cells, and it is translated by those same cells to produce the spike proteins. B cells and other immune elements recognize these proteins, and B cells do the voodoo that they do so well. They become plasma cells that make antibodies and produce a clone army of memory B cells. You may have heard that both of these vaccines appear to require two injections to be efficacious. So why is that? 
but the simplest level is to increase the numbers of that clone army, which can produce enough antibodies to neutralize the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Most vaccines have to be at least 50% effective before they're released to the public, and a 70% efficacy is considered quite good. The really good news? Large-scale Phase three clinical trials with both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are reported to be in the neighborhood of 95% effective. There are a few caveats, however. The Pfizer vaccine must be stored at minus 80 degrees centigrade. And the reason for this is that RNA is notoriously unstable. There are other considerations as well. Not everybody will want to be vaccinated for various reasons. And even if they do accept vaccination, there historically has been a very low compliance rate in terms of people coming back to receive the second vaccination. As well, we don't really know how long immunity will last from a vaccine. The most recent information that I have is that it seems to last about three months. But what if a virus mutates and the vaccine no longer works? Of course, scientists will need to adapt and produce vaccines accordingly. All of this leads me to the topic of the next burning question. Burning question number three, what is herd immunity? You've likely heard of this term in news articles or on social media. Briefly, herd immunity refers to the concept that when enough people are vaccinated for a disease, they will create protection for those who are not vaccinated and susceptible. I'd like to invite you to visualize this as a tray of red, white, and blue colored marbles. Blue marbles represent people who are vaccinated. White marbles represent those individuals who have not been vaccinated. And red marbles represent people who have a virus and are contagious. If you have many blue marbles in the tray, this will reduce the chances of red marbles, the infected ones, hitting white ones. And those are the people who are susceptible. In this way, if enough people have immunity, the chances of others who aren't protected will be lessened. One suggestion early in the current pandemic was that we should simply let people get infected, and when they become immune, they will naturally create herd immunity. There are a couple of massive problems with this theory. The first is that the cost in terms of human suffering and death would be tremendous, given how deadly the coronavirus can be. As this process could theoretically ensue, our healthcare system would become simply overwhelmed, as it is currently close to being. The second big problem is that we do not yet know for how long infected people with the coronavirus, or SARS-CoV-2, will remain immune. With the apparent high efficacy of the leading vaccine candidates, there's ample reason for hope that these vaccines will help humanity develop a herd immunity. However, one of the most serious limitations is the reluctance of so many people to get vaccinated. Why is this? Well, certainly the anti-vaccine lobby has not been helpful in this regard. There are lots of unsubstantiated stories about the harms of vaccines, which still get circulated. As well, most vaccines take years to develop. And of course, the current SARS-CoV-2 vaccine candidates were developed far more rapidly than at any time in history. What mitigates, in my opinion, concerns about a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine from the current top candidates is the fact that many thousands more people have been through phase three clinical trials than has been the case with most past vaccines. Moreover, there have been, thus far, remarkably few side effects. 
Partly, I think, this is due to the robust recombinant technology that has been used. Does this mean that there will not be harmful side effects of a COVID-19 vaccine? There's never a guarantee. However, I would point out that the potential risks of contracting the disease is far outweighed by the potential benefits of getting inoculated. One fear I do have is that vaccines which have not had the same level of rigorous testing, such as the Russian Sputnik V vaccine, may cause serious side effects, which then undermine public trust in other vaccines. Another leading candidate is the AstraZeneca vaccine. It differs in some fundamental ways from the previous two, which utilized vaccinations with specific RNAs to get cells to produce spike proteins. The AstraZeneca vaccine uses a modified chimpanzee cold virus, which is unable to cause disease itself. Then the gene coding for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is spliced into this virus, called an adenovirus, which is then used to vaccinate people. So the virus then infects our cells and gets them to produce spike proteins in there and produce an immune response. While this vaccine is not quite as effective, it seems to be anywhere from 70 to 90 percent, it does have a couple of advantages. First, it's cheaper, and second, it doesn't require super cold storage temperatures. There has been, unfortunately, some confusion about the actual study data, and I look forward to this being resolved. Finally, as we await the rollout of these vaccines, we will still need to use basic prevention measures, masks, social distancing, hygiene, you know the drill, to keep infection rates from climbing too high. I, for one, believe that infectivity rates are already far too high. But even after the vaccines do become widely available, we will still need to utilize prevention measures, as well as both rapid antigen and PCR-based testing to detect infected individuals. How long will we need to keep this up? Will SARS-CoV-2 simply become less pathogenic? There's already ample speculation about these questions, some based on mathematical modeling and some not. So I suggest that we'll all still need to take a wait-and-see approach for the foreseeable future. And so, with that, we've come to the end of our verbalization of the virtues of vaccines. Have I inoculated you with hope, or have you been dosed with doubt? Whichever the case, I wish you all, dear listeners, open minds and healthy habits. Dr. Bill, signing off for now. (laughs) 